Welcome to Saltier Politics. Today we have a wonderful conversation for World Pride 2019. We talked to my friend Casey Martin. She's a lawyer. She owns this really cool company, Gender Trader. And she is an interesting interesting woman. She went to Liberty University and went through conversion therapy not once but twice. She talks about all that here. And she's also a conservative. We, we get into it. We have a great conversation. And I'm Really excited, Julie, for everybody to be a part of it. I am as well. Tweet us back at Saltier Politics, Politics Saltier, um, and let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you. Happy Pride! This week, I'm very excited. We have my friend Casey Martin on. She is a lawyer by day and the owner of Gender Trader Shop by Night. And Casey can tell you more about it, but Julie, I'm really excited to have Casey on because... This is Pride Month, and Casey is an interesting case. She, she is a lawyer. She is a Republican. She is religious and also a lesbian. So Quite the anomaly. <laughs> right. So I'm excited for you guys to meet and to kind of talk about her journey. She went to Liberty University, both for undergrad and law school, and has been through conversion therapy twice. So... Tell us that story, because Liberty, for those people who don't know, um, is, is was founded by Jerry Falwell Sr., right, Casey? Yes. Um, it's actually in a beautiful part of Virginia. I've been there. It's a stunning campus, but um, certainly quite conservative, um, still run by evangelical Christians. And um, I assume, knowing that there are many things you can't do, like drink on campus, smoke, um, certainly, I assume, engage in premarital sex, regardless of your, your um, orientation. So... Do they make you undergo conversion therapy, or how did that work? Um, yeah, so the second time that I underwent conversion therapy was while I was at Liberty. Um, I actually knew I was gay before I went to Liberty, but I was essentially told that I couldn't go to Liberty if I was gay. Right. So it was almost like go to the college that you've been accepted to and have a scholarship to, or be gay. <laughs> so I kind of had a mentality of, okay, maybe I can you know, be fixed, I guess, by this school of, in my mind, normal people. Um, And by the time I was in my junior year, it became pretty apparent that I wasn't going to be uh, fixed or changed. So I started to slowly come out to a few people on my hall that I thought I could trust. Um, And then I got called in by my RA and they sat me down and they said, listen, we've heard that you are attracted to women. And I said, that is true, yes. Um, they said, okay, well, you're aware that that's a violation of what's called the Liberty Way or their code of conduct. Um, and I was like, yes, I'm aware of that. And they said, okay, well, we don't want to punish you. We want to help you. So instead of giving you reprimands and a $500 fine, which was the punishment for homosexual behavior. Which is a, for a college student, actually not just for a college student, an obscene amount of money. But, yeah, you know, no, it's crazy. Right. It's the same. It's actually uh, the same amount that you would get fined if you had an abortion or practice witchcraft. Wow. <laughs> so that's a real okay. thing. Um, they said, we're just going to send you to therapy uh, here on campus, and once you complete a certain number of sessions and we feel like you're headed on the right track, then you won't have to go anymore. So that's that's when the second round of conversion therapy started. And what's conversion therapy um, entail? What does that mean? So I think a lot of people think of conversion therapy as kind of like Uh, if you've seen the miseducation of Cameron Post where it's like they show you pictures of penises and like wait till you get sexually aroused by the penis and then you're no longer a lesbian. Um, I think that these days it's definitely shifted from that because I think even the strongest evangelical Christian would admit that's insane. So the experience that I had was very, like I said, pray the gay away. We sat there. um, He, he, ironically, a man, uh, referenced scripture, basically asked me to defend my sexuality and support it by scripture, uh, was quoting the Bible with me, was telling me that uh, this isn't what God wants for me. God didn't make me this way. Uh, God doesn't make mistakes. He made me how I am, but this is sin that's coming into my life. You know, the whole hate the sin, love the sinner, just constantly, uh, if you pray, God will change you. God can change your heart kind of thing. And did 
Was this one-on-one or were there other people there? Mine was one-on-one. I have uh, a close friend who underwent a similar experience, but it was in a group setting. So it can really go either way. They had group settings available and they offered it to me, which I always think is really funny because nothing will make you gayer than putting you in a room full of other lesbians who (laughs) are also struggling. No, it's like, great, now I know who the other gays are (laughs) on campus. No, exactly. It's like, just just wear a rainbow flag on our chest, like, uh, we're identifying each other. But mine was one-on-one. Was there a commiseration, I mean, among other um, gay men or lesbians who you must have run into on campus, did you guys commiserate about the situation that you were in or was it not discussed or how did that work so that's uh one of the most disheartening things i was literally the only gay person i knew on the whole campus so and i am sure that's not true obviously but in my eyes i was kind of uh very much alone even though i ended up meeting one of my uh, significant girlfriends (laughs) my junior year recently after the conversion therapy failed um, but it wasn't like there was this underground kind of gay community where we could band together. It was very much um, isolated. And did you grow up in an evangelical household? I did. I did. Yeah. My uh, family is actually very good friends with the Falwells. And both of my parents went to Liberty, which is how it was kind of pre-selected for me, um, which also made coming out on campus that much harder because it wasn't just I was some student who was gay it was oh this is like the Falwell's best friend who's a lesbian right you know what I find interesting about this whole situation is that um certainly never having gone through anything like that but it would seem to me that if you grow up with that imbued into you from day one obviously and you grow up in a very religious household um which is fine um and then you go to a school that buttresses everything that you've grown up believing. And I'm sure you probably agreed with everything else going on at the school. I assume you probably grew up in a religious, you yourself maybe were religious by the time you got there or or believed um, what they were teaching. And then was your attitude about this whole conversion therapy, was it rebellious or did you actually really try to pray the gay away? Um, Yes to both of those things. So uh, I think, again, when I first started at Liberty, I really thought... I could change, and I really wanted to change. I wanted to just be normal. I saw all the girls on campus holding hands with the boys, going home to meet the the parents, and I just wanted to fit in. I just always felt so uh, odd for so long. I mean, I knew I was gay since I was 14. Uh, So initially, yeah, I did try to pray the gay way, and I tried to do the whole um, Liberty way, go to prayer meetings and all of this. And then by the time I was a junior, I just felt everything within me kind of, uh, leaking out at the seams, if you will. And that's when I just said, okay, like I, I like girls and I'm just going to tell people and whatever happens, happens after the conversion therapy. Um, I very much rebelled against the church. I did not consider myself to be a Christian. I hated everything to do with it. I hated God because in my mind, uh, he did make me this way. And if he made me this way, why would he want to change me? And I just felt very kind of uh, kicked out of the church and not wanted. Um, Obviously, that's come full circle. I am uh, currently a Christian, and I do consider myself to be a Christian. And uh, that's very important to me. But initially, there was definitely a backlash that pushed me away from the church. And what made you stay at Liberty for law school? Was it just because it was the easiest path to take? Or did you um, still believe in everything else Liberty was espousing and you thought that was a good place to be? Or what was the reason for that? I think by the time I had reached law school, um, I I was in a relationship, like I said, with a woman Uh, We were living together, and somehow in my mind, I was still trying to reconcile that uh, interplay between faith and sexuality. And I thought, okay, I can have my kind of secret life over here with my girlfriend, and I can have my good religious life over here with my school, and the two never have to commingle, almost this uh, church and state separation in my mind. And it really wasn't until I moved to New York that I realized you don't have to separate the two. You can be gay, and you can be a Christian, and you can be anything you want to be in this world. Um, But I think going into law school, that was my mentality of I can do both things. I just have one hand in each cookie jar. Do you think, um, now living in New York and being out, um, but also being a spiritual, obviously religious person, 
can that coexist in the way that I, I'm going to use the Falwells as an example only because that's we're talking about liberty, but it could be the Falwells or, or Robert Jeffries or any of these other um, very prominent evangelicals. Can that coexist for them, do you think? I mean, can they accept you and their community the way you are if you subscribe to virtually everything else? Can Do you think there's a way to convince people that this is, in fact, how God made you? I think that that is going to come with time. I think that the old ways are slowly changing. Uh, even Liberty now, I go and visit. My family still lives in Lynchburg. Um, and when I visit, it's a totally different campus now. It's uh, a lot more progressive than it used to be. I can guarantee you if I went there now, I would have that community of uh, gay people to talk to. Um, but I don't think that you're going to change the minds of people that have rooted their opinions for generations. I think that it's going to take new generations to kind of uh, enlighten the older generation and in the same way train new generations. So I don't know if you can kind of teach an old dog new tricks, but you can certainly uh, raise new puppies. You know, um, I have a very good friend named Bill Baroni, and he was a Republican state senator in New Jersey, um, very Catholic, very, very religious, um, and gay. And he was the only Republican when New Jersey was voting on marriage equality going back, I want to say, almost 10 years ago, if not more, to vote for marriage equality. And there was, and he was desperately worried. He wasn't out yet. He was desperately worried that he was going to be able to not be able to take communion. He was not going to be able to participate in any of the church rites that were so important to him. Um, and again, his faith is, much like you sound, yours is very important to him. Um, I remember having this conversation with him where he said, you know, people keep telling me, not in so many words to pray the gay way, but people keep telling me who, who know that I'm gay, why are you doing this and you can change? And he said, don't you think that if I could, I would, that my life would be so much easier. Yeah. Um, and I remember him saying to me, I could be president of the United States if I were straight. I mean, this was a very ambitious at the time, um, very prominent Republican um, at the time longer is but um but what's so fascinating to me about that is to people who do say pray the gay way it sounds to me like if especially in a situation like yours where your entire family is so close to to this culture um and you grew up this way if you could wouldn't you <laughs> and so i don't i just I, I i always and i'm straight so for me obviously this is a more of an intellectual exercise but i i struggle when people say that about others because it's not like you're choosing to make your life more difficult for yourself. I'm sure you would have loved to have had a boyfriend and hold hands with him and go meet his parents when you were 19 or 20 and, and go to all the stuff that, you know, straight women and men did. But um, I just, I don't grasp that. And have you ever had that discussion with people that just say to you, you know, this is a lifestyle that you choose rather than this is how you were born and you can't fight it? Yeah, oh, that's the constant uh, debate, I think. That's really the thing that holds... Uh, what would be most conservatives or Republicans, however you want to identify them, back from acceptance is they do see it as a choice. They see it as a lifestyle. Um, and I think someone actually once described it to me when I came out to them in law school. They said, well, homosexuality is different than other sins because it's the only sin that you choose to identify yourself as. You know, I don't identify myself as a liar but you identify yourself as a lesbian. So you're using that sin as an identification tool. So that's what makes it so different. Um, and that breaks my heart. You know, I've had that conversation with my mom. Um, the many times that I've uh, tried to make her accept, you know, how I am uh, when I was coming out to her, uh, she literally said that she wished I had told her I was pregnant with a drug dealer's child then to do this. And she even said, you're choosing to live a difficult life. And I said, mom, don't you understand? I'm not choosing anything. Uh, and I used to say that a lot. I would say, don't you think if I could change, I would. Don't you think I would choose an easier life? And I think now that I've reached a point of almost acceptance and uh, really self-love, as cliche as that sounds, to where... Um, I don't think I would change anymore, even if you know God came down and said, "Okay, uh, almost this uh, Ovid metamorphoses option of you can be straight if that's what you want." Um, I really don't think I would choose it because I really think that there is this gap that needs to be bridged between 
religion or faith, spirituality, and sexuality. And I think that it's going to take people, hopefully people like me, and I know so many others that are working to bridge that gap and hopefully, uh, I don't know, blaze a trail, if you will, for people in the future. What was the difference? You said you went to conversion therapy twice. What was the mentality as how old? 14 the first time? Right. And why? Why, why the first time at 14? Um, so the first time I went was because my mom <laughs> found out that I was watching the L Word. Uh, and this was like 2004. The L Word was like this hot new thing, which I know it's about to be again for all the new baby lesbians out there. That's very exciting. Um, but this was 2004. This was a brand new uh, concept. I uh, was just figuring out like what I was, how I felt. You know, you're 14. That's what every 14-year-old does. I was too young and stupid to delete the browser history on my computer. So I woke up one morning after my wisdom teeth had been pulled out and my mom was sitting by my, med- my bed and said, what's the L word? Uh, and that turned into a conversation that I was not ready to have with my mom, who then said, uh, if you're having these thoughts, then uh, you need to go see a therapist. Um, and I went, this was a therapist I had seen prior, or I should say shortly after my parents got divorced and, uh, very, it was pretty much the exact same thing as I had in college. Just the, here's the Bible, pray the gay away. You can change. God doesn't want this from you. Um, et cetera. But how did you feel at 14? Because 14 for anybody is an awful age, especially when it comes to sexuality. Um, like eighth grade, I remember in eighth, ninth grade, you're kind of coming into your body, especially as a girl, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter what your orientation is. You're coming into your body. You're all confused. Anyway, it doesn't matter what your orientation is. Oh, yeah. um, you know, for me, you're kind of looking at these boys who you grew up with and now suddenly you're looking at them in a different way and you're not really sure what the story is and some of them are not really there yet and some of them are much further along than you are. So it sucks to be 14. I don't care what your sexual orientation is as a girl. I can't speak to what it's like for boys, but I think for girls it just generally, I will speak for all of womankind to say not a great time in your life, especially when it comes to sexuality of any kind. (laughs) So now you're 14 years old and on top of all the horrific stuff that you're dealing with as a 14-year-old girl, you've got to deal with something that is different from every other 14-year-old girl that you know. And your mother is telling you to go to conversion therapy. I would think that at 14, that's probably much more of a blow than it was at 19 or 20 the second time around. At least at 19 or 20, you're kind of more of an adult, though you're not fully adult, right? Was it just a worse experience or was it... Um, Am I exaggerating that? I think that at that time, I was so unsure of everything that I kind of believed anything. It's almost that that saying, if you don't stand for something, you're fall for anything. I was 14. Like you said, I was learning my body, learning these sexual desires that I had never really experienced. And then on top of that, you're learning that any sexual desire is bad. So in my mind, having sexual desire for a woman was like twice as bad. Um, so I, resisted therapy just because it really wasn't something I liked when I had to go because my parents were divorced. Um, but at the same time, I think I had more of that desire to, again, be normal or change just because on top of, um, I guess the orientation pressures or whatever that was, um, I had the normal 14 year old pressures of, oh, well, my boobs aren't as big as that girl's boobs in the locker yeah. room. Like, I'm not, you know, a far, as far along as they are and this constant comparison. And then you add on top of that, girls started spreading rumors about me at school, saying that I was a dyke and all of this. We don't want to change in front of her in the locker room. So it was really just impactful, but at the same time... Um, I was just so pliable at that point that I don't think it had the same impact as when I was in college because I felt like when I was in college, I should be a little bit more confident and a little bit more firm in who I was. And so to kind of have spent those years building this little, uh, I guess, house of cards, right, for my confidence and then having it just completely wiped away in, you know, a number of therapy sessions was a lot more, uh, I guess, devastating than when I was younger. What do you think of Trump's Supreme Court nominees? Because you said you're a Republican. Obviously, you're a conservative. Um, but these are also people who may not vote on the court in ways that benefit you personally. So what do you think? So uh, my approach to politics is maybe a little bit 
different than a lot of people. I don't vote for special interests. Um, I obviously very much support uh, equal rights, equal marriage. I would love to get married to a woman one day. That is my hope. Um, ultimately, I choose the politician that I think will be best for the country overall. Sometimes that aligns with my views and sometimes that doesn't. Um, and I mean, if you look at who Trump, one of Trump's nominees is replacing, it was Scalia anyways, so it's not like that's going to be some great shift in right. the dynamic of the court. Um, but that's a difficult one for me, I think, as far as uh, resolving my personal views versus my political views. I do consider myself to be a Republican, but there are a number of issues that I do not agree with the Republican Party on. Uh, I always say I kind of fall in this like uh, purple area because I'm not all red and I'm not all blue. And I think that most people actually do. That's something my girlfriend and I talk about a lot is, you know, she considers herself to be liberal. I consider myself to be conservative. But if we sit down at a table kind of like me and you, uh, we actually agree on more than we disagree I on. I think that's the case for most people. And I found that a lot um, when I worked at Fox that obviously I was an outlier. I was a liberal. Most people there were conservatives. But um, when we would go out for drinks... Afterwards, um, maybe on issues like abortion, there's not much gray, right? Either you're pro-choice yeah. or you're pro-life. But yeah. on a virtually, I, Emily, I can't think of other issues aside from abortion. Maybe the death penalty, obviously, either you're, you're, you're for or you're against it. But except for decisions like that, I think most people are like that. I think the, the problem in our culture, tell me if you think I'm right or maybe I'm not, is that um, people watch too much cable news or listen to too much talk radio and they don't realize it's done to gin them up for the ratings and no other reason. And there's very few times that you can have conversations with Republicans. We've had a lot of Republicans on this podcast, a lot. Right. Um, and I would bet you that we're probably one of the very few who actually have real conversations with them and don't just gin each other up for the, for the purposes of... Um, it's true, because yeah. at the end of the day, every parent or every person wants what's a great education for their kids. And, you know... One Republican may live in a school with great charter districts, whereas another one, or charter schools, right. where another one may not. So the argument is just listening and then perhaps finding what's the best part about charter schools that could be emulated. Or, But when you don't sit and you don't have those conversations, that's when these vehement just, you can't even sit and have a conversation comes up. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think that, well, that's obviously one of the things we first bonded over, Emily, was you found out I was conservative, I found out you were liberal, and we were like, let's discuss. You know, what? what is it that we have in common? What is it that we don't have in common? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that if people, it, I think that there's very few people in America who are truly 100% Democratic versus 100% Republican. No question about it. I, I really do. And I think the fact that our political system is so polarized only works to further divide our country. Um, and that's really disappointing because, you know, the, the nation's motto is e pluribus unum, out of many, one. And unfortunately, I think we're moving away from that right now because we're all focused so much on our differences and uh, what we don't have in common and how we can move to kind of bolster our own individual views. We're not looking at this as, hey, listen, we're one nation. So what can we do to grow together instead of growing apart? And I I do agree, you know, Republicans watch Fox and liberals watch C-SPAN and that's just the way it is. And there's a real problem with that because they're both going to be slanted towards, like you said, gearing up their positions. One one thing, though, I found very striking was when someone you, you take is attacking your humanity and what you believe in and your personal happiness, your marriage, your way of life, it's then hard to have those kind of conversations. So how... Do you de-escalate it? I'm gay, and I, I think it's more important to talk to an audience who doesn't agree with you to have that dialogue. But what do you say when people may be in that kind of very con- confrontational area? Yeah, I think that at least getting back to kind of what we started with, which is religion, um, it's interesting when I tell people Uh, There's two things. Uh, One, I think that we need to break down the assumptions that we have about each other, right? So you tell someone you work for Fox, naturally he assumes, oh, you're some conservative right-wing bigot, right? And I always tell people that I could introduce myself in two words and you could think you know everything about me. I could introduce myself as uh, a Christian who's from the South 
or I can introduce myself as a lesbian who lives in New York City. And just based on those two things, you would assume, oh, she's uh, some liberal who voted for Hillary, or oh, she's com- some conservative who voted for Trump. And the thing is, I'm all of, all of those four words right there and so much more. But we just are so quick to kind of put people in boxes because we want to understand people, categorize them, and be done with them. We don't actually want to learn who these individuals are, learn their stories, their experiences. Um, And getting back to what I said about really the religious focus is uh, what you just said, Emily, as far as uh, speaking a message to an audience who may not be as receptive is really uh, the message of the Bible, honestly. You know, we are called to uh, go forth and uh, minister to all the nations and all the world. That is uh, the Great Commission. That was Christ's last uh, directive, essentially, to his disciples, to his followers, to whoever. So if we're really, you know, our mission as Christians or as, you know, humans on this earth, whether that's religious or not, is to spread your message, who better to spread that to than people who have never heard it or people who disagree with it? How else are you going to really make an impact on the world? But your message is not the same message that I would, and I'm not going to, again, um, I don't intend to single out the Falwells, but just because we're talking about liberty, it's not the same message that they would preach. They would say, go and put forth your message. The message is you're living a life of sin. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So who gets to determine the message, I guess? And in this evangelical, if you're using the word evangelical in its true sense, who's going to preach the good news and what's the good news that you're going to preach to, th- to people who don't agree with you. Yeah, I think that... I say this as a Jew, by the way, so I'm going to oh, stop, stop Stop right now because I obviously don't know much about this, but go ahead. No, uh, I think that, honestly, we're seeing a little bit of a trend in the church to... It used to be you would have a pastor who would stand on a pulpit and whatever he said, that was the gospel truth, okay? I think that we're reaching a point where it's falling more on the individual. Uh, people read the Bible or uh, the Quran or whatever their religious text is, and they're receiving different messages or different truths really from those scriptures. Um, And I do think we're seeing a lot more, uh, I don't want to say flexibility, but maybe growth in the concept of spirituality over this religious dogma that we've seen for thousands of years now. Um, So I do think that it is a more individual uh, approach to either, again, whatever religion that you are. Um, I have a Muslim friend who is very accepting of gay rights, gay marriage, whatever, um, just like I have Christian friends who are not in any way accepting of it. And I think that really focusing on uh, your relationship with, with God, the universe, whatever it is that you identify as, is hopefully going to become more important than uh like the song says, paraphrasing a book that was written 3,500 years ago. What made you come back to God? Because you said you were angry, you didn't consider yourself a Christian. Was it when you started being more self-accepting about your um, sexual orientation? I think it was. I think that um, my anger with God was really my anger with myself. Uh, I was very much struggling with, of course, you know, who I was, the life that I wanted to lead, um, being a lesbian had always been portrayed to me as this uh, kind of stereotypical, like super short hair, like more uh, butch, uh, I guess, typical gender roles. And realizing that I can be who I want and I can be with who I want and I can also hold that person's hand and walk into church and anyone who wants to give me a dirty look can give me a dirty look and I really don't care. Um, had a lot to do with it because I do identify a lot of my faith with my family because I was raised in that home. Uh, To me, going to church isn't just going for God. It's going as a way to feel connected to my upbringing, to feel connected to my family, who I really don't have that much in common with at this point. Um, You know, it's a focal point of conversation when I do go home. So it's important for a lot more reasons, but I do think that Um, that level of kind of acceptance and uh, just self-recognition really uh, had a lot to do with it. A peace, maybe, an inner peace with myself. How is your family right now with you? Are they accepting it or at least Uh, living with it? (laughs) Um, So for a long time, it was like a don't ask, don't tell policy. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then a few Thanksgivings ago, how many was that, Emily? Was that two Thanksgivings two. ago? I think? Two Thanksgivings ago, because um, I think I called you like right after or something. Um, I just sat my mom down and I was like, listen, this isn't going away. Uh, it's here. It's queer. It's going to stay, <laughs> you know, not in so many words, but that's basically what I said. Um, you know, she cried and was, uh, concerned and also upset, disappointed the word you never want to hear from a parent. Um, and since then she really hasn't mentioned it. It's kind of like she has this ostrich approach, you mm-hmm. know, and like, that's kind of it. Um, and that's something that I, you know, I talk with. I go to therapy now regularly, um, big mental health advocate, all for therapy. That's something that I'm kind of working through is having those hard conversations of, listen, this is real. It's, I'm going to bring a woman home one day. I'm going to spend my life uh, with a woman if I can, you know, find someone who <laughs> would agree to that with me. And uh, you're going to have to deal with it. Um, but that's difficult. It's hard to go home and not feel welcomed in your home which is currently how it feels. Um, It's an uphill battle. Again, I've seen kind of your transition of becoming more and more into yourself, so (laughs) much so that you've started a, your side hustle, a brand, (laughs) Gender Trader. Yes. Um, So Gender Trader is one year old. Trader, T-R-A-D-E-R or T-R-A-I-T? T-R-A-I-T. Like a traitor to your cause. Yeah. I was like, why can't I spell the name of my own business right right now? Exactly. Um, I actually admittedly stole it from A Handmaid's Tale reference. People ask me that a lot. Um, I was watching the show. That's what they call gay people. And I was like, I I just would love to like harness that name. Um, I did all of my legal research. It has not been uh, trademarked, copyrighted uh, until me. And I did that very quickly. Um, It it is a year old on July 6th, I think, is its one-year birthday. And it really just started as... uh, It really started as a blog, honestly. I just wanted an outlet to uh, express kind of uh, these things I was going through, whether that was with sexuality, whether it was with uh, mental health overall, my family, uh, anything. And then I wanted to really open it up to other people. I've always enjoyed writing. It's always been an outlet for me. It still is. Um, and I wanted to open it up as a forum for, uh, other people who maybe didn't have that support at home, much like I didn't, didn't have the friend system, um, and at least a way to feel kind of connected. And I think that's something that is really easily done now in, I guess, the modern age with social media. Um, so it started as a blog. It evolved quickly into kind of a clothing brand, um, I have t-shirts, we have snapbacks. Um, I have an awesome graphic designer who just made a new logo for us, which is really cool. And we're actually going to be at uh, World Pride in New York this year. Nice. We have a booth at Pride Fest and we'll be selling all types of fun stuff and just, yeah, promoting the brand. How do people find it? GenderTrader.com? Or is there oh yeah, website? so it's uh, GenderTraderShop.com. Um, or we're on Instagram again, gender trader shop on Facebook, Twitter, all the things, um, you can find us. I think actually now if you Google, literally, if you Google gender trader, we might be one of the first ones that comes up after like handmaid's tale references, of course, but it's definitely, uh, the SEO content is getting to the top of the list. So I couldn't watch handmaid's handmaid's tale. Did you watch it, Emily? I did. That is something we might want to discuss. Oh man. I tried watching it or... I watched like three episodes and I was, it was too painful and I, it's, and I, it really is painful and I couldn't, I couldn't keep going. There's really not an episode where you get up and you're like, wow. I feel great. Yeah. yeah. It's not like at least Game of Thrones, you get up after a couple episodes and you're like, badass. This Except one, for the whole last season. Oh yeah. Game we don't, Thrones, please. This is, this know, is like the running didn't exist. Theme, theme of this entire, <laughs> this entire podcast. The last six months has been, yeah, we don't exist. How no, much we hate. The last I'm, season uh, of I'm not cut up on Handmaid's Tale actually. So no spoilers, but it's, definitely a powerful show for sure so yeah i i, I tried i just yeah. couldn't it was like i don't want to not today not no. today today has been a heavy day in life yeah. yeah i'm like life is kind of heavy and i don't really want to watch some woman getting raped by some guy for no reason other yeah. than to procreate so yeah. i don't know listen I, I gotta tell you um as as people who listen to this podcast know obviously i have a seven-year-old son um who's here today actually um hiding out in a different part of this office but he um I got to tell you, and Emily, you and I have talked about this a lot. If he came home and said that he's gay, I struggle with a scenario where I would 
care one way or the other, except for one thing that I think you mentioned, which is that I think in some parts of the country, his life would be harder. And, Very, you, and, yeah. and you don't want his life to be harder. But from my own perspective, could, you know, couldn't care less. I, I think also, um, I don't know if, I, I know you've heard about it because I shared it on my Instagram, but in London a few days ago, uh, two lesbians were on a bus and this group of men uh, started harassing them, saying things like, oh, kiss, you know, you guys are together, let's see it. Because that's every it. straight guy's dream, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely, because we're here for your entertainment, naturally. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and and they actually ended up uh, beating up the couple and robbing them. Uh, one of them shared a photo of them just completely bloodied uh, on her Facebook, and it's gotten this kind of international recognition. And it it's happened, in London itself? Uh, in London. That's shocking. Yeah, and it's crazy. And it, was, it happened on May 31st, so right on the eve of Pride. And it's really, it's shocking and it's surprising, but at the same time, it's not. Um, you know, here we are, it's World Pride, there's Pride flags flying all over. Lord knows the corporations have taken a hold of it and are squeezing every ounce they can out of the rainbow flag. Whichever side you fall on on that, that's fine. Um, but it is still happening. You know, I'll walk with my girlfriend, and I'm sure that's something you've experienced too, Emily. I, you know, I'll walk with my girlfriend down the street. We're holding hands, just going about our day. And here comes guys following us down the street. Oh, hey, that's how you roll. Let's see it. Give her a kiss. Yeah, come here. I can straighten you out. Uh, and it's it's just crazy that in 2019, as far as we've moved forward, we're still so far backwards in so many ways. So we, we still have a long way to go before a true equality is reached. That's what I don't get. First of all, I get the whole guy fantasy because that's been a guy fantasy in, per- in perpetuity. But um, what I don't get is... Um, why anybody cares what you do behind closed doors? Like, who cares? Like, do you care who I'm with? Like, why do I care who you're with? Other than if this woman makes you happier, this man makes me happy, it doesn't really matter. That's what I don't get about a a whole variety of these things. And I'm taking religion out of the equation because obviously people have very deeply held religious views that tell them differently. But if religion is not your bag, Mm -hmm. um, why do you care? Who cares? I mean, who cares? cares? No, that's that's interesting too. I don't know if... uh, what you're familiar with, with the Bowers v. Hardwick case, which um, was reversed with Lawrence v. Texas, which is a big landmark case for gay rights. For the sodomy case. Yeah, Yeah. so Bowers v. Hardwick, actually, the facts of that case are really interesting because these two men were found in their home, uh, you know, in bed together. So someone literally came and, you know, basically busted down the door like it's V for Vendetta or something, Mm -hmm. uh, and then arrested them for sodomy. Um, so it really is this kind of crazy concept of this is my home. This is my, you know, my castle, if you will, this is my safe place. And even that is still, obviously there's been so much progress since then, but still that concept of what we do in our homes is everybody else's business, but what other people do in their homes is totally fine. But here's what's interesting. Is that sodomy related to just to that case? Was it just two men or if if this was, would the law apply? Is, Is there a blanket? sodomy ban if this were a man and a woman? Yeah, so that's actually a point I uh, tongue-in-cheek, I guess, brought up in law school. Um, I said, oh, okay, well, I guess uh, lesbian activity is totally fine then because it didn't have to do with sodomy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's absolutely was the case legally. It only related to sodomy, uh, had nothing to do with women, and even a lot of references that you find in the Bible refer strictly to sodomy. So again, I, I kind of almost joke about it. I'm like, oh, well, see, being a lesbian is totally fine. <laughs> um, obviously, you know. Well, of course, because yeah. the Bible is written by men, and we all know <laughs> men, men love nothing more than the, thing, the scenario of two women together, exactly. but keep going. No, yeah, exactly. And that, that's kind of, the, I guess, uh, the point, but obviously uh, lesbians still very much being discriminated against right. at, at that time. If not, um, if it wasn't codified, it was certainly de facto the case and still is the case. Do you think that, uh, this is a question for both of you, do you think it's harder to be a lesbian in 2019 or to be a gay man in terms of oh, your gosh. your rights being abrogated? Oh, I, I don't know if I could answer that, honestly. I, do, I honestly don't have um, a lot of gay male friends to have understood their experiences or what they've gone through, so... Uh, I would definitely not feel comfortable opining on that one. Uh, I think I think being a woman, I I feel more hypersexualized being being gay because mm-hmm. I feel also as a woman that you have to prove sometimes that you're smart if you, mm-hmm. if you're attractive. I don't know, Julie. Maybe you've 
had to deal with this like but that's but that's not a gay or straight thing i think generally if you're attractive hyper sexualizes it not only are you an attractive woman or a woman but who's already sexualized but then you have the gay thing into it and it's just exponential so i think i will say one thing um and maybe this is indicative of my answer before i even say it um I think that there is more of a fantasy around, like you said, two women being together as opposed to two men being together. Like I said, uh, I walk down the street, I'm holding hands with my girlfriend. It's almost this attractive, oh, we want to see more, right? You see two men walking down the street and it's, oh, gross, fag, you know, all of these like kind of... Uh, Pejorative. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's It's never really seen in this uh desirable i should say light as opposed to you know two women good lord look at the porn industry for crying out loud how often do you see like oh threesome two women oh no by the way you raise an interesting point i i don't know how i know the statistic but i read it somewhere um i think the number one search on porn sites is lesbian is lesbian sex and that's not lesbian women searching clearly for other lesbian women it's (laughs) clearly not so it's interesting how you're absolutely right and emily you raised a great point the whole notion of being a lesbian i think is hypersexualized not by other lesbians but hypersexualized mainly by men right and then i think straight men straight men oh no no question straight men yeah Gay men. The gay men couldn't care less no, about you guys. Right, no. <laughs> I'm friends with a lot of gay guys. Trust me, they're not searching for lesbian sex. And honestly, yeah. lesbians couldn't care less. Yeah, about exactly. Right. Porn. Like, right. let's just be honest. Right. And but it's then also it goes just into the fear of being taken seriously and in work and in that, which is always how I've defined my success in work. And then so being a fear of not being taken seriously is just another thing added on to it. Yeah. Which has been tough for me that no I totally agree it's uh it's kind of a joke when so when I go to work I'll usually wear uh, a button-down shirt you know some dress pants Mm -hmm. little like Oxford shoes sometimes I'll wear a tie like very tomboy kind of dress and when I have a trial for example I'll immediately put on a dress and heels why because I don't want to potentially offend a member of the jury who would assume my sexuality and there is still that kind of uh I don't want to say pressure, but maybe stigma associated with, oh, uh, well, she's a lesbian. So let's just, again, assume we know everything about her. Well, I don't like that lifestyle, so I'm not going to like her as a lawyer. So it's almost this uh, expectation of, uh, or or almost like I'm on a show. Like, okay, I've got to put on the dog and pony show for the jury, make sure I look pretty, do my makeup, do my hair, wear the heels that are going to kill my feet by the end of the day and the dress that's too tight. Oh, God, I can can relate to that. (laughs) I've been a fox for a long time. Um, The whole thing to me that's so striking as you guys are talking about this is you have to essentially change um, your entire persona um, or or, or try to feminize it, I guess, is the way you just described it, although you're just as feminine as as any other woman out there. But... um, all of, all to do with something that has nothing to do with anybody's life. This is what you do behind closed doors. So the fact that you're, you're the aspect of your professional life, your social not your social life in a romantic sense, but your life outside the bedroom is subsumed by something that really only takes place inside the bedroom. It's kind of it's kind of it's ridiculous. Crazy. It's crazy. I mean, think about that. It's crazy that we're yeah. spending time in 2019 talking about having to adjust your life in any way, shape, or form in ways that are not um, meaningful to anybody who you're not spending quality time with in your bedroom. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a very good friend, I still have a very good friend who actually just, he's gay, he got engaged yesterday, as a matter of fact, to, to his boyfriend, my friend Ben, Emily, I think oh you've met God. him. Yeah, it was Congrats, great. Congrats, Ben. Yes, um, it was yeah. a great engagement party, Ben. Um, but Ben came out to me, and I think I was the first person he came out to. He's almost like my little brother, and I've known him. He interned for me when I worked in the Senate, so I think I've known him since he was in college, and he's now almost 40, but um, he came out to me, I want to say like a decade ago, and he sat down with me, and I remember he was kind of almost hostile about it. He goes, I just want you to know something along the lines of like, you know, I'm never going to marry a woman. I I think that's how he presented it, and I said, yeah, I know, and he's like, do you know what I'm saying to you? I'm like, yeah, I get it, (laughs) and he was like offended, and I kind of don't blame him, because to me, I was like, listen, like, uh, 
and I'm not going to marry a woman either. I'm going to marry a guy, and you're going to marry a guy, and it's all going to be good. And I think he th- thought I kind of was dismissing the import of what he was saying, whereas in fact I was saying, uh, what do I care who you sleep with? But I now understand in retrospect why he was upset, and it's exactly what we we're talking about. It subsumes your entire life in a way that my sexuality doesn't, right? Like, I don't wake up every morning... Um, trying to exude something like I'm a straight woman and then I you know go home to to my boyfriend and then that's nobody's business as to what we do or don't do but but you guys actually have to live a very different life where this is your entire life because people have made it that way not because you've made it that way right it it is and it's is the outfit I pick out (laughs) going to look too gay or it's like also am I going to come out to this person today or Things like that that you keep have at the back of your head that are always there. Absolutely. Well, it's so funny you say that because I literally texted Emily when I was coming here and I said, I look so gay today, you know? Well, I don't even know what that means, but I think think you look beautiful today. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, But, uh, and those are synonymous things. They are. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, But it is, it's very much like uh, when I, how I dress, you know, maybe when I'm hanging out with you or going to a pride event or whatever versus how I dress when I go to court versus how I dress when I go home. You know, I literally, before I go home, I have to do this kind of like run through of my wardrobe of, uh, does this look too gay? Do Does this look too gay? Does this look too gay? And it's insane. You're never going to have a straight woman who's like, do I look like I like men today? Like it's yeah, but that's my whole never going to happen. You're right. so, you're so right. Like I don't spend one iota of my day thinking, do I look straight today? <laughs> Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> or, <laughs> frankly, in the way that I'm dressed right now, if people could see this, I literally, I think I'm homeless. Like, I jumped out of the shower, didn't even blow dry my hair. I'm dripping wet hair, and my jeans have 20 holes in them, and I'm wearing Stan Smith's, I think, from 1988. It's trendy. But, um, it's trendy now, yeah. but trust me, these, I think Hipster. these literally, I think, yeah. I wore Stan Smith's before hipsters were alive, my friend. But um, I wore them when they were tennis shoes, when I tried to play tennis, which I never will do in front of Emily. But, um, so, you're absolutely right, and I don't ever think about... Um, what I look like when I go home other than my parents um, constantly tell me that I need to take better care of myself. But um, other than that, I mean, it's just not, it's not, straight people don't have these issues. And I think anybody who's listening who is straight themselves and, and doesn't maybe know gay people or ever experience what, what gay people go through, I, this is like a whole thing that most people who are, I think all people who are straight never have to contend with. But I think, Julie, you brought up a good point. Just people who are not gay or may not have gay friends, just being a strong ally. And Julie, you have always been one, someone who I feel safe with and trust. Thank you. But I think that's also important because most of the world isn't gay. But being an ally, just being open and empathetic. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, One of my... uh, I don't want to say one of my few straight friends, but honestly, most of my friends at this point are lesbians. Mm-hmm. And I don't know whether that's been an intentional choice or just the way the, you know, rainbow cookies have crumbled. Right. Um, but one of my straight friends literally uh, yesterday um, said, well, I don't understand why is there a gay pride month? There's not a straight pride month. Really? And I was like, what? <laughs> like my brain like exploded. And I was like, dude, we're never going to agree on this. Every single day is straight pride day. Like every day that you wake up, you are the default and you don't have to, you know, kind of check the box that's marked other under sexuality in your mind. And this is our one month out of the year where we feel like we are the majority and we are the norm and we can uh, put the rainbow band on our Apple watch or wear the snapback or uh, wave the flag or hang the flag on our fire escape like I have and feel uh, accepted even in a liberal, accepting, tolerant, whatever you want to call it, city like New York, you are still the minority and you feel it every second of every day that you walk down the street. And I think that's how a lot of my African-American friends um, who are raising kids here in New York, I had this conversation with um, one of my son's best friends in school. He just finished first grade. Um, is a little is a little African-American boy and his mom and I um, Emily, you know, we have a house up in Massachusetts that we um, sometimes use as a ski house. So they went skiing with us over spring break, um, the mom and her little boy. And we sent the kids off to ski school, and then the mom and I decided to get a few drinks, and it turned into, like, you know, a day of debauchery. But, um, but <laughs> as, it, as, as, it, as, it, as it should when you have two <laughs> seven-year-old boys that you're trying to offload. But so, um, so one of the things that she said after a few drinks, and she's so right, is she said, you know, I have to worry about my son, my little, at the time I think he was six, my little 
boy, um, leaving the house every day and um, having to contend with, as he gets older, the police looking at him in skeptical ways that they wouldn't look at your little blonde boy. Um, and I have to tell him to always be respectful to the cops and I have to tell him to always be you know, extra respectful to law enforcement because if he's not, he's gonna be assumed to be um, a criminal in ways that, that my son, who, who, who's blonde, would not be. And she's so right. And that's something that, that I don't ever have to talk with my son about. Like I don't wake up in the morning and say, listen, almost from birth, if you see cops, just be extra, extra respectful because if you're not, something might happen to you. Yeah. Um, Emily, I, I don't remember if you were working on Outnumbered when this particular episode aired, but when Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York, who I don't like but um, <laughs> at all, and he sucks, and please come back to New York and fix it rather than running for president, Mr. Mayor, but um, when he was talking about his son Dante and how he had to sit down with his son Dante because Dante's mother is, is, is black and de Blasio is obviously white, um, and had to talk to de Blasio about how, uh, to his son Dante, about how he had to be extra respectful to the cops, um, I remember we talked about this on Outnumbered and everybody went ballistic. Oh my God, why is he using this as a racial thing and why is he doing this? And I said, listen, I have a son. At the time, my son, I think, was two or three. Um, this is a discussion I never have to have with him. And it's a lot of what you guys are saying that, that, that African-Americans and other minorities have to leave the house constantly being aware that they are potentially singled out for their race. Mm -hmm. You guys have to leave the house every single day constantly aware that you might be singled out for your sexuality. Um, as a white woman who's straight, I don't ever have those kinds of concerns. Yeah. And that's a lot for you guys to carry. That's a lot for anybody to carry constantly. It's like an extra boulder you have to carry. And I think most people who are not gay or don't have gay friends may not realize what a hassle that is every single day. Yeah. And I think the, the one, well, obviously there's, uh, of course, differences uh, historically and otherwise associated with uh, racial discrimination, well, sure, sexual discrimination, pe whatever. People see your race before they see your orientation. Yeah, and right? that's my point, too, is um, we also have, I guess, not to make one greater or lesser than the other, but we have the unique uh, burden of essentially coming out to everyone we meet, mm -hmm. right? Because straight is the default. And uh, unless I'm walking around wearing a dress made of rainbows, you know, when you see me, you might not assume that I'm a lesbian. So I'll have guys uh, hit on me or guys ask for my number or whatever. They'll send me like a message on Instagram and I'm like, listen, like I'm flattered, but I'm gay. And they're like, oh. <laughs> Even better. Really? Yeah. Oh, Bring your girlfriend oh, over. fine. And I'm like, no, like I, yeah. I don't want to do this. You know, if I'm uh, an African-American woman, you know, I'm an African-American woman. Right. You can see that I'm an African-American woman. Um, I don't have to tell you, by the way, I'm black, you know, uh, as a lesbian, you do every single person. And whether that's by slipping in the fact like, oh yeah, my girlfriend and I like this Broadway show or, Hey, listen, dude, I'm gay. You know, however you choose to do it, you constantly have to do it to everyone, you know? But, but do you have to do that, um, to people who are not hitting on you? Like, do you have to do that? Um, so Emily and I knew each other for a very long time before she actually told me that she was gay. Um, did you have to do that? I mean, I think you, you told me because you wanted me to meet your girlfriend. I mean, there were reasons why you told me, but the point is, I don't ever have to go around being like, oh yeah, P.S., I'm straight. <laughs> I might be like, hey, Emily, I want you to meet my boyfriend, but that's different than having to affirmatively declare what I do behind closed doors and with whom I do it. Well, I, I first think it's feeling out for me as a security thing is, am I safe telling somebody? Or what are their biases? Mm -hmm. Because if I know this person is biased or something like that, it's, it's testing the waters. And then it's also, I genuinely wanted to be your friend. And you can't really be someone's friend if you give them half truths mm -hmm. and you yeah. live half lives. Because if I'm only telling you about half and the issues of my day, it's, we can't, we only know each other on a surface level. I, I definitely think Julie, you and I know each other deeper than that. And That's there's for sure. yep. no way we could get there if I was only half of me and so guarded. Cause it's, I, I think the beginning when I first do know people, it's first like, you know, do you, you trust my work? Do you trust me? Do you, all, all these different things that I'm like security wise, I'm, I'm good. Okay. She's, she's, she doesn't have any biases. Okay. I'm good. She's not going to be uncomfortable with me being me. I'm good. It's just this checklist in my head where it's, it's kind of exhausting, but then it's like the people who I am close to, I am extremely loyal. It's, it's, I have felt this way, but it, it's, it's not easy because. Yeah. In case you raise a good point that 
This is something you affirmatively have to do, which virtually nobody else does. If it's not a, if a, gay men have to do it, mm-hmm. and and lesbians have to do it, but I don't know. You're absolutely right. African American women or or anybody else don't have to affirmatively tell you who they are. People can see it. Yeah. Um, which which makes it harder for them in some ways because obviously they can't hide against bigots in ways that Very other people true. can. But yeah. it's also uh, exhausting, I would think. Just yeah, it know. is, and I think. Um, you know, there is something to be said. Yes, what defines, I guess, a lesbian, a gay man, whatever, bisexual, it is really, of course, technically what goes on behind closed doors, but at the same time, um, it's not because it is a lifestyle. It is who we are to the core of our being. Um, and I feel that every time that I go home, right? Because I can think oh, that's, that is what I do behind closed doors and that's nobody's business mm-hmm. and whatever. But even down to jokes, the dialogue, shows that we watch, characters that we like, you know, I can't go home and be like, oh my gosh, that girl looks just like Dana from The L Word, you know? People will be like, what are you even talking about? Or, you know, I can't like have the same kind of connection that I have with people that uh, are in the LGBTQ community. And so, yes, it is technically, you know, it's nobody's business. It's what we do behind closed doors. But at the same time, um, it's, it's so much more than that. And I think that, uh, that becomes very difficult when you can't just be honest with who you are with everyone. That, um, we don't have time for this conversation, but you raise an interesting point, which is how much of your sexuality is just about sex and how much of your sexuality is, is the core of who you are and defines everything about you. And I've never given that any thought as a straight woman to myself. Um, but I assume that if you're in the situation that you're in, especially having grown up, Casey, the way you grew up, that it's probably a lot more than just your sexuality, right? It's yeah. just about sex. No, it's not just about sex. Yeah, exactly right. No, that's great too. But. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, this is honestly, I think, the most fascinating podcast ever done. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Part two. We'll definitely have a part two for sure. Um, Definitely. I want to do that. Thank thank you guys for having me. Happy Pride, everybody. Happy Pride, everybody. Happy Pride. Come to World Pride. Come see me. Definitely. Julie, I very much enjoyed what just happened. Um, We just had an absolutely amazing chat with your friend, Casey, who hopefully now is my friend, Casey, but um, just a great, great conversation. Casey is... Um, a lesbian. Happy Pride, everybody. Casey is grew up as an evangelical Christian. She's a graduate of Liberty University and Liberty Law School. Um, she still considers herself a strong Christian and a conservative. Um, it was just a lovely conversation. I hope more people have conversations like this because you may find um, that you agree more than you disagree with people in politics when you talk to people who are not of your views. And, you know, having this conversation and showing that being religious and being gay is they are not mutually exclusive is something I think is really important to hear. And just to be able to have the conversation that we did is something I think that can be emulated across the country. I really hope more people do. And I think as, as we talked about during, during our conversation, unfortunately our political discourse is skewed towards 140 characters or whatever it is on Twitter where you can't really have nuance um, or cable news where you just have shout fests and you specifically have to find people who have, are diametrically opposed to each other to argue and debate um, or talk radio, which really is off the hook. Um, very few conversations where people actually just have discussions for the sake of having discussions. And I hope that more people um, have those kinds of discussions. And I hope more people understand that you can't have 100% of, you, you'll never find anybody you agree with 100%, but if the person is a good person, and you share different views, as long as you are not a discriminatory bigot, there's no reason why people can't be friends. Well, that gets me right into what I'm salty about this week. Uh, the Catholic Church spent $10.6 million to lobby against legislation that would benefit victims of child sex abuse. So all these victims of clergy who have been sexually abused, uh, the Catholic Church has been lobbying and has spent, in a new report, found over $10.6 million to lobby against this legislation. For example, the legislation in New York that passed on February 14th, the Child Victims Act, um, which increased the age at which the victims are able to sue from 23 to 55, Mm -hmm. uh, the Catholic Church spent almost $3 million lobbying against that. So that is making me extremely salty, but it also, being raised Catholic, it also just 
is just another example of the hypocrisy in the Catholic Church. Well, um, I have this policy of not criticizing religions that are not my own, so I'm not Catholic, so I'm going to um, withhold my views on, on what you said other than to say the following. I generally think that if you are an entity that preaches morality and tells people how they should live their lives and you're didactic, which is really the definition of what all faiths are for the most part, I shouldn't speak to all faiths, but all three major religions, um, you probably should, um, and especially if you claim to walk in, in, in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, you probably should emulate him. Um, and I truly, and this goes for, for, I'm Jewish, this goes for my religion as well, um, because certainly this happens in, in Jewish communities as well as, as Catholic and, and other Christian denominations. Um, why are you protecting pedophiles? I mean, there's under no circumstances is this acceptable. I don't care what your reading of scripture is. It's just not acceptable. I mean, these are the most vulnerable, and I don't want to start quoting Jesus about protecting the, the most vulnerable among us, but um, because I'm not qualified to, but I mean, these are kids. Right. And, and I get that you don't want to bankrupt. You know, I, I was somewhat involved in similar legislation in New Jersey to extend the statute, extend the statute of limitations, um, and not just for the church, but for, for other entities as well. On, on child sex abuse. And what I don't understand is, um, I, I get the church and, and other entities are worried that they're gonna be bankrupt if people keep suing them for this. I, I completely get it. On the other hand, you are a moral institution and your job is to preach morality. And I would think that the, the, the quest for the almighty dollar is not as important as protecting and making right um, the victims of, of child abuse, a lot of whom have committed suicide or have had lifelong psychological problems based on the fact that they were abused by a priest or by a rabbi or by an imam or by you know, their next door neighbor. Well, the church has always, I, I feel, been out for itself. I was a history major in college, and one of the stories that always stuck out to me about the Catholic Church was why Catholic priests can't get married. And it was actually because uh, Catholic priests were... For, at first, allowed to marry. Um, it, 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 Can, cancel, cancel of Nicaea is when they adopted all this stuff, I want to say, right. like in 300-something. But it was when uh, the church was losing so much land because priests, when they died, it was going to their families and not back into the church. And the church was concerned that they weren't getting this land back. So then it becomes part of the word that priests can't get married. So it's simply to retain land. Well, and then you have... Um, popes of the Middle Ages like the Borgias or during the Renaissance who had multiple children and, and made their children huge landowners and, and um, um, Cesar Borgia who was the son of a, a pope was a huge battle commander and, and control I mean it's just it, it's pretty interesting to me um, how things have evolved um, again not for me to discuss uh, or criticize somebody else's religion simply just to say if you're a human being I don't care if you are wearing a collar or you're not um staying away from little kids is probably, not probably, definitely the wise thing to do. And if you have abused that, then you deserve to be brought to justice um, and not just defrocked and not just moved from one parish to another or from one school to another, but prosecuted um, under the law like anybody else would be. I will say an amen to that. Thank you. Um, I'm going to tell you what makes me salty. And before anybody starts tweeting me about how dare I go after the um, president's children, they are not children. They are all adults who are approaching 40, some of whom are over 40. Why the hell were Donald Trump's children at Buckingham Palace, especially the ones who don't work at the White House? Like, why was Junior there? And why was Eric there, who are working for the Trump organization and have nothing whatsoever to do with the government? They're doing it all for the Insta. I mean, no, they're doing it because they want to hang out. I mean, it's like, you know, I get it. Like, they want to hang out with the royalty. Right. <laughs> I understand. Everybody wants to hang out with Kate and William. But why were they there? Why was Tiffany Trump there? And it's not that I have anything personally against her. I just think it's a bad look. And lest anybody says, well, Malia Obama and Sasha Obama accompanied the president. Um, different. Right. Different. They were minor children who were not, who were living at the White House. I don't even have a problem with Ivanka and that dope Jared doing it because they work at the White House. But why were private citizens hanging out at Buckingham Palace? Are we trying to pretend that they're some sort of American royal family? I mean, it's, it's the whole thing drives me crazy. The nepotism of this administration drives me up the wall. It's insane, and it needs to stop. And I feel bad for the queen, because I'm sure she was like, I can't believe I have to hang out with this orange marmalade dope um, and his children. 
And um, I just, uh, this whole family just drives me nuts. I can't wait for them to go, all of them. Yeah, I, I concur. I think they're doing it all for likes on social media. No, it's like the experience. Like, okay, it's, you right. know, it's like, wow, okay, we get to hang I out with the royal family. Like, look at us. We get to hang out with the royal family. And, and it's not like I'm a huge fan of the royal family. I really couldn't care less about them one way or the other. I just don't understand when there's a state visit um, that you're making why your adult children who work for a private corporation that does business um, in said country, as in they own a golf course in Scotland, um, why they get to go. And on that note, by the way, did you see Trump saying to the Prime Minister of um, Ireland, does he, do you know about walls? We have, do you guys have walls here? You really should build a wall. Like, Does this guy not know anything about the history of Northern Ireland and Ireland? Uh, no, he does not. <laughs> like, is he the only person, is he the only uh, living person who lived through the quote-unquote troubles um, in the latter part, of, or not just the latter part, of, basically throughout the, the 20th century who doesn't understand when you talk about the Irish, you're talking about walls, especially now during Brexit, when you have Northern Ireland Brexiting as part of the UK, but the rest of Ireland remaining as part of the EU. Um, what that means for a nation that has been riven historically. War-torn, right. I mean, war-torn, going back to William of Orange, prior to William of Orange. I mean, the, I don't want to get into the whole British-slash-Irish history class here. Uh, and also... Um, now that we're on a salty thing, one, one last thing, and then I'll stop. I promise. I actually didn't know what made me salty, but now it's a lot of things coming out. It's like a therapy <laughs> session. Um, when you're abroad, and this actually applies not just to Trump, Obama did this. It didn't. I didn't like it either. Um, I don't. I hate when politicians do this. Politics stop at the water's edge. When you are representing our country abroad, stop trashing your political opponents back here at home. And again, I'm not blaming Trump for this solely. Obama did it. I think Biden did it. Um, I just don't like it. I don't like it at all. If you're abroad, just stop. We're all Americans when the minute you set foot outside of this country, so stop trashing Nancy Pelosi when you're sitting in front of the American cemetery in Normandy in front of the people that died to free Europe and to save the world from Nazism. I mean, don't trash Nancy Pelosi, Mr. President, when you're sitting literally in front of white marble crosses on hallow ground where Americans died fighting Nazis. So, on that note, happy Pride, everybody. A, a, a woman to all of that. <laughs> all right, everybody. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>